Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me extend to all of you this morning uh, my greetings and to welcome back uh, our students who have already been here as well as extend a special greeting to those who are new students. Uh, Let me also bring uh, to you greetings from your classmates who are serving the Lord in North Africa, uh, Central Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Rim. A week ago at this time, my wife Charlotte and I were in Chiang Mai, Thailand with about 25 of your classmates who are serving the Lord faithfully uh, in those particular regions, virtually every one of them uh, in very difficult contexts, many of them in places that are quite dangerous, uh, but they are there uh, to proclaim without apology the gospel and the power of the cross. And I'm very thankful for a school that is so passionately committed to honoring the final marching orders of the Lord Jesus Christ, those words being what we call the Great Commission. Our text this morning is found in the book of Acts chapter 10. If you would, join me there. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48, the entire chapter, a gospel for all the nations. Acts 10, 1 through 48. In the book, What in the World is God Doing? Alan Fleece says, and I quote, This is the decision we do not make because it has already been made whether we spend our lives for the purpose of reaching all men with the gospel is not optional. Christ has commanded every Christian to do just this. Now, there are many different ways of accomplishing this one purpose, but regardless of the particular work God has for each of us to do, the one aim of us all in doing our particular job for the Lord must be the evangelization of the whole world. Alan Fleece is right. We have been commissioned and commanded by a heavenly king to evangelize the whole world. That means every single person of the 7.2 billion people on planet Earth is to be the object of our evangelizing passion. Every single person of the 11,168 people groups in the world is to be the focus of our mission strategies. Every single person of the 6,544 unreached people groups, a population according to the International Mission Board is 4.83 billion, is to be the assignment of our 44,000 plus churches. And every single person of the 2,982 unengaged people groups. That means there's no gospel presence there at all. There are no churches. There are no missionaries. There are no evangelists. There are no Christians. These likewise must not be left behind. Indeed, they must not be left out of our pleas to the Father, to as Matthew says in chapter 9, send forth laborers into his harvest. No, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for all the nations. It is a gospel for all peoples. And our text, Acts chapter 10, makes this perfectly clear. It's an interesting passage because God gets involved directly to overcome the bigotry, the prejudice, what I call the spiritual nearsightedness of the Apostle Peter, the one that according to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19, he gave the keys of the kingdom. Well, evidently, at this particular point in time, the big fisherman is not using the keys as Christ intended. And so our Lord gets personally involved and in the process, I think, provides for us a pattern of world missions for every one of us, for our churches, and for our convention. As we walk through these 48 verses, and we will walk quickly, we're going to do a little Bible walking this morning, if you like. Uh, you're going to encounter a narrative text that is very rich theologically. It's very rich missiologically, and also I believe it is very rich personally. And so my prayer for me as well as for you is simply this. Lord, give us ears to hear. Five observations from Acts chapter 10. Number one, those who seek the Lord will be found by Him. Look at verse 1 through verse 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Four things are said about him. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that is about 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. And again, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is one of the most important passages in all of the book of Acts. In fact, it is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. He starts in chapter 10 and verse 1 and actually runs all the way through chapter 11 and verse 18 as he recounts what took place in the home of this Gentile centurion. In fact, he actually tells the story twice. Why? Because here we have the record of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the Gentiles, going to the nations. It is a radical moment. It is a decisive moment in the life and the history of the church. This man, uh, Cornelius, lived in a town called Caesarea. He's a Roman soldier. We would say today a, a modern army captain, probably had approximately a hundred men under his care. And as you see again there in verse 2, we discover this was a good man by any human standards. Four things again are said about him. He is devout, 
Uh, he is one who feared God. He was a generous giver and he was a man who prayed. He was one who was following the God of Israel and he was committed to him. He was devoted to him. He was living a morally good and upright life. He was a good man by any human standards and he indeed had a heart that was seeking after God. But the main thing that Luke would want us to understand from this passage is this. He was a Gentile. He was one among the nations, one who to this point the Jews still saw as inferior, unclean, unworthy of entering into their home and observing table fellowship, which was so very important in the Mediterranean culture of the day. In fact, it still is. Curtis Vaughn, who for many years taught New Testament at Southwestern Seminary, says of this day and age, the chasm between Jew and Gentile was worse than the Hindu caste system, worse than the racial divide in our own nation. And yet God looking to the heart of this man, and by the way, that is the only place and the one place where our God is colorblind. He sees all hearts exactly the same way in need of a Savior. He sees a soul in search of salvation. And so we see there he provides a vision telling him how he may find salvation. An angel of God came in, told him uh, to spoke to Cornelius. What is it, Lord? Your prayers, your alms have been answered. Verse 5, send to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. And notice in verse 7 and 8, his obedience was immediate. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and hadn't related everything to them. He indeed sent them to Joppa. God has prepared this man's heart. And he is indeed an example, I believe, of many unsaved people, many among the unreached peoples who indeed are seeking the truth. God is dealing with their hearts. God is working in their lives. They do, like Cornelius, want to know the one true God. You say, Danny, where are they? They're everywhere. They're everywhere. They are among those 11,000 plus people groups in the world. They are among those 6,544 unreached people groups of the world. God sees their hearts. And I believe God honors the intention of their hearts. In fact, I am convinced that our God will go to extraordinary lengths to get the gospel to them. There's a very basic principle in theology that we must always recall again and again in the missiological context. Respond to the revelation that you have and God will give you more. Cornelius was living up to the revelation that he had. He was a good man, but do not miss this. He was still a lost man. That is why God moved Peter to take him and his family the gospel. He could not be saved, and no one can be saved apart from the good news of the gospel. But again, hear the promise that you find in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So those who want to know the Lord... Those who live up to the light that they have, the revelation that they have in creation. That's what is taught in Romans chapter 1. They live up to the light that they have from God in conscience. That's Romans chapter 2. I believe God promises to give them more light. He will find them. 
And he will get them the gospel. Those who seek the Lord will be found by him. Number two, God will raise up missionaries to get the gospel to those who seek him. Look at verses 9 through 23. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that is noon, and he went there to pray. Uh, And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, uh, he fell into a trance. Saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, a threefold command, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, uh, By no means, Lord... Rather interesting statement. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, As to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. And so here's another threefold command. Rise and go down and accompany them, and do so without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. John Stott says the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel worldwide is the failure of the lives of God's people. I would add people who focus on and have a passion for the Great Commission are seldom troublemakers, ethnocentric, self-centered, focusing on little things that are silly things, and sometimes they may even be sinful things. Uh, This was a lesson that the Lord had to teach and teach directly to the Apostle Peter. Like Cornelius, God comes to Peter in a vision, as we see and read in verse 9 and verse 10. He's praying around noontime, uh, that is the lunch hour, Uh, The vision includes uh, a command as Peter falls into a trance and as he sees this vision open up of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and the threefold command is given to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, no doubt this vision included uh, what Peter would have considered at this point in time unclean animals. You have a listing of them in Leviticus chapter 11. And so without overstating the case at all, Peter is horrified by what is now a daytime nightmare. And he vehemently protests there in verse 14, by no means, Lord, not sure how you tell your Lord no, but he does, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this is familiar territory for Peter. 
Uh, resisting the Lord's command was something familiar to him. He had rebuked the Lord when he told the disciples that he was going to the cross. That took place in Matthew chapter 16. Later, he tells the Lord on the night in which he is betrayed that he is not to wash his feet. You find that in John chapter 13. And furthermore, we've seen on a number of occasions, at least two, uh, Peter receiving a threefold lesson. First of all, related to his denial. And then in John chapter 21, Peter, do you love me? Verse 15, the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And don't miss verse 16. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once. I think John Piper captures quite well the, the essence of what could be described as a heated dialogue between God and Peter here in these verses. God gave Peter a vision of animals that the Jews regarded as unclean because of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. The voice from heaven said, rise and eat. But Peter protested that they were unclean. And the voice came back with these decisive words in verse 15. What God has cleansed, made clean, you must not call common. In other words, with the coming of Jesus into the world and with the final cleansing sacrifice of Christ now offered, and with the command to take the gospel to all ethnic groups in the world now given, the old ceremonial laws about foods are lifted, and that barrier to the Gentile world is removed. And so Peter's vision has two points. The food laws are fulfilled and ended in Jesus. That's Mark 7, 19. And the people that kept you separate from the nations, the Gentiles, are not to be considered unclean are common. Well, verse 17 tells us the vision inwardly perplexed Peter. He's still not clear what's going on. He's still not clear what God is saying. And so the Spirit gets involved in verse 19. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, and here's a threefold command again. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter engages them, finds out who sent them. And verse 23, he begins to show that he is moving in the right direction. He's beginning to understand that these racial barriers must come down. He invited them in to be his guest. When I was about um, 12 years old, uh, my granddaddy was a godly, godly man, uh, suddenly had a heart attack and, and, and died. He passed away. Uh, they lived out in a little house, basically one, two, three, four rooms. They used to have an outhouse. At least they'd carved out an indoor bathroom by the time he passed away. But he lived in this farmhouse out there in Douglasville, Georgia. And when, when my granddaddy died, of course, all sorts of folks came uh, to bring food and, and, and so on. And, and right next to his farm uh, was a farm that was occupied by a black family. I had played uh, with the, the, the sons and daughters uh, of, those, uh, of that family many times when I'd gone to see my granddaddy. And in fact, uh, the mother in the home, we called her Aunt Lorene. Uh, and uh, for a time, she even babysat uh, me uh, and my brother and my sister. But when my granddaddy died, Aunt Lorene walked over from her farm. And she came up on the front porch and she stopped and she would not go into the house. Uh, 
Uh, she had brought some food, and, and my mother came out on the porch and hugged her and invited her in, but she, she wouldn't come in, and, and then later she went back to her house. And I remember later asking my mom, well, well why wouldn't Aunt Lorreen uh, come in? And uh, I'll never forget my mother saying, well, uh, she knew that there were some people in the house who did not want her to come in. Even to this day, I can feel the hair on my neck going up. And I can recall the anger I felt. And basically I said to my mother, well, I'll tell you what. Tell them to get out of the house so that she can be in the house. Because I like her a whole lot more than I like them. And I did, and I still do. But anyway, that's, that's my own issues that I'm, I'm having to process. My point is simply this. What took place on that occasion can be multiplied a hundredfold when you think about the Jew-Gentile relationship in the first century and that Peter would invite them in to be his guest is a mammoth act that shows us God is working in his heart, God is knocking down the bigotry and the prejudice and the spiritual nearsightedness of Peter and he's on the way to getting where God wants him to be. I like what David Platt said in his sermon on this particular passage at this particular moment. What happens here is God, starting with Peter, begins to bring about a conversion from deep-seated prejudice to divinely ordained openness. I like that. I want to say it again. He begins to bring about a conversion from deep-seated prejudice to divinely ordained openness. The heart begins to change here. God says, you need to be open to what I'm doing among all the people groups. You need to be open to what I'm doing among the nations around you. And by the way, isn't it interesting that all this takes place in Joppa? Of course, we should... Knowing our Bible, recall another important event that took place in Joppa during the Old Testament era, that is, the prophet Jonah. You think maybe that was echoing in the back of Peter's mind and maybe Peter was recognizing it doesn't really pay off for any of us to run from God. He is quite adept at tracking us down. Well, what was true of Jonah is also true of Peter, but also what is true for Jonah and Peter is true for you and me as well. You run all you want from a God who wants to reach the nations with the gospel. He'll run you down and tackle you and get your attention in any way that he finds necessary. God will raise up missionaries to get the gospel to those who seek him. Number three, God seeks the salvation of all nations without partiality. Verse 23 through verse 35. So he invited them in to be his guests, verse 23, and the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So he's excited. He wants everybody to be a part of what is going to take place. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Let me quickly add, unlawful in the Bible? No. Unlawful according to the accruement of, biblical, uh, of Jewish tradition? Yes. So he says to them, according to my traditions... 
according to our history, uh, I, I ought not to, to be here. I, I'm not to associate or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And so I'll just note it in passing here very quickly. Cornelius recounts the story of the angel appearing to him and the angel telling him to call for Simon, who is called Peter, who's staying in the home of another Simon, who's a tanner, who lives up there in Caesarea. So verse 33, so I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, for, now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And verse 34, perhaps one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but, verse 35, in every nation... Among anyone who fears him and does what is right, that one is acceptable to him. My pastor friend Duran Gray says, when Jesus arose from the grave, he created a whole new race of people, not defined by color, but defined by his blood. And yet our own Tony Morita notes tragically, we judge by appearance. We discriminate, and we discriminate on these factors, appearance, ancestry, age, achievement, and affluence. Well, this had been true of Peter, but now God is working his life, and so he obeyed the command of the Lord, verses 23 and 24. He makes the 30-mile journey from Joppa up to Caesarea. And upon meeting Cornelius, Peter exhibits both appropriate humility. Don't worship me. I'm just a man like anybody else. And he also shows brutal honesty, acknowledging that up until this moment, I wouldn't have come to share the gospel with you. I wouldn't have come to your house. I wouldn't have come down and visited and interacted with you. My traditions say no, but God says yes. And so he says, I'm a man like any man. And perhaps he would even go so far as to say, I'm a sinful man. And one that I desperately needed my God to straighten me out. And so, as I noted in verses 30 through 33... Cornelius it recounts the events that led them to this point. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, Peter makes what I think is one of the most important statements in all the Bible. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, now I really understand God doesn't show favoritism, the Amplified Bible, most certainly and thoroughly, I now perceive that God shows no partiality and is no respecter of persons. And Eugene Peterson in the message captures well what I consider to be the massive theological significance and import of what Peter says and now understands. Peter fairly exploded with his good news. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and you are ready to do what he says, the door is open. Indeed, our God is no respecter of persons when it comes to seeking the salvation of human beings who are made in his likeness and his image. 
in Christ and through the gospel, racial barriers do come crashing down. Ethnic barriers do come crashing down. Cultural barriers do come crashing down. Social barriers do come crashing down. Economic barriers, which are so real in our day and age, they come crashing down. Yes, every single barrier falls at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'll just simply say, anyone who says otherwise is calling God a liar. No, God has a plan and it is a laser beam pointed to people anywhere and pointed to people everywhere. Verse 35, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to our God. So that's God's perspective on the issue. I guess the question for all of us to consider at this moment is, whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? And I came across this in my study. C.T. Studd, a missionary hero to me and many others, served the Lord in China, served the Lord in India, served the Lord in Sudan, served the Lord in the Congo, and is buried today in the Congo. He said this, Had I cared for the comments and opinions of people, I should never have been a missionary. Bottom line, brothers and sisters, all that really matters in life is that you listen to God and that you please God. The Bible says God seeks the salvation of nations without partiality, number four. The good news of the gospel is the only means whereby God saves anyone, verse 36 through verse 43. Now listen to what David Platt says about this gospel. The gospel is good. You know it's good. We know it's good. It's a divine message, but it requires a human messenger. We are God's instrument to do this. Our responsibility is urgent. His power is available to us. When we speak this word, He will bless it. He will bless it to lead people to Christ. His power is available to His people, and His plan is aimed at all peoples. Peter has refused to be treated as a god. Peter also refused to treat the nations as unworthy dogs. He has been called by God to be a gospel-heralding missionary, and that's exactly what he does in verses 34 through verse 43. Look at it. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation among anyone who fears him and does what is right, they are acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching the gospel, good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Parenthetically, don't forget, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him. And after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach 
to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of their sins. Basically, Peter presents the gospel in three movements. He gives us the life and ministry of Jesus in verses 37 through 39. He gives us the saving act of crucifixion and resurrection in verses 39 through 41. And then he tells us that the promise of salvation is to all, to everyone who believes. Verse 42 and 43. Three quick theological observations. Number one. The exclusivity of the gospel message is once again affirmed. What Peter says is in perfect alignment with what Jesus said in John 14, 6, and what Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. There's only one means to God, and that means and that avenue is Jesus. Secondly, the universality of the gospel offer is affirmed. Everyone, everyone who believes. Thirdly, the missionary imperative of the gospel mandate is affirmed in verse 42. He says again, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to judge all the living and the dead. There is only one way. His name is Jesus. And that's why Carl F.H. Henry says the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. John Piper adds, we will be worshiping and praising God for eternity, but we have only a limited time upon earth to engage in missions so that the nations will rejoice and sing for joy. The good news of the gospel is the only means whereby God saves anyone. Number five, God gives the Holy Spirit to all who respond to the word of his gospel. Look at verse 44 through verse 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on the nations. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling, exalting God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Again, here are the insights of Pastor John Piper. The Spirit is sent to make Christ real to people and to show us who he really is in his glory so that we come to love Him and trust Him and obey Him and show Him to the world. The Spirit loves to come and take the truth about Jesus and turn it into an experience of Jesus. Verses 44 through 48 record the happy results of Peter's preaching and taking the gospel to the nations. As he is preaching, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, word and spirit, the clarion call of the Reformation. Verse 45 informs us that some have not yet gotten to where Peter is in terms of their bigotry, uh, their prejudice, their nearsightedness. It says they were amazed. They, they couldn't believe that God would save Gentiles. 
However, there was irrefutable evidence. They are speaking in tongues. And they are praising God. As one man has said, this is nothing less than the Gentile Pentecost following in the pattern of the Jewish Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the falling of the Spirit on Gentile believers mandates, it mandates their inclusion into the community of faith, the church, the family of God, by the initiatory rite of, and celebration of baptism. In other words, it's clear. The Lord has baptized them by His Spirit into His family. And Peter says, I will now baptize them with water into the visible fellowship. Bears of race, they're gone. Bears of ethnicity, they're gone. Bears of nationality, they have all come crashing down through the power of the cross. Brothers and sisters, the church would never be the same after this. And that should not surprise us. After all, sameness was never God's goal to begin with. So I close. We have an indiscriminate, all-inclusive gospel to proclaim to the nations near and far. Our God has placed no limitations on those He longs to save, those He longs to bring to Himself, he has no limitations on those he longs to bring to himself and in the process glorify his son. John Stott says it so very well, and I close with this statement. If God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous, as Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. The highest, now don't miss this, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedient to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather our supreme motive, zeal, burning, and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Before this supreme goal of the Christian mission, all other unworthy motives will both wither and they will die. So friends, brothers and sisters, ours is a gospel for the nations, isn't it? My challenge to me and my challenge to you, let's join hands with our great God and get that gospel to them for their good, but ultimately for His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Acts chapter 10 because if it had not come to pass, I would not be here today as a saved, blood bought believer and follower of Jesus. Had the gospel not gone to the Gentiles and remained only a Jewish gospel, virtually most of us, all of us in this room, would have no hope. And yet, Lord, you so desire for all the nations to come to worship your Son. You got up close and personal in Peter's life, and you worked to undo the bigotry and the prejudice and the spiritual nearsightedness of this great apostle. And Lord, if you had to do that kind of work in his life, it may be that you need to do that same kind of work in some of our lives as well. Lord, even in a place like Southeastern, where one of our core values is kingdom diversity, 
where we are striving mightily to, to build a seminary, to train men and women that will go out and build churches that will reflect what the church will look like in heaven. Even here, if we are honest, it is still possible for, for sinful seeds of bigotry and sinful seeds of prejudice and sinful seeds of spiritual nearsightedness to afflict us and even blind us. And Lord, only Your Word cleansing us and only Your Spirit changing us can enable us to put to death those prejudices and those bigotries and those sins and have a heart for all the nations, red, yellow, black, white, brown, all of them are precious in your sight. And therefore, they need to be precious in our sight as well. So, Lord, do your work in our lives. And then, Lord, may we, like Peter, go and go gladly and go boldly, knowing that among all the peoples of the world, you have a people there waiting to hear the gospel and believe on Jesus. We claim that promise and we believe it. Thanking you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.